Once again, Israel is in the news. The reason for this is simple, for Israel is the key to unlocking history. Throughout history, there's always been tensions within and between the nations of the Middle East. However, regardless of the events that have triggered these many crises, the finger of blame always seems to point at God's special nation of Israel. This tiny nation, which represents only 4% of the population of the Middle East, is constantly the focal point of world controversy. Why should a nation the size of New Jersey occupy so much of the world's attention? Now, Israel is a unique country with a very unique history. Few people realize that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, a democracy in which both Jewish and Arab citizens are allowed to freely vote. Both Arabs and Jewish citizens can be in the parliament, that's the legislature branch of the Israeli government, and people, Arabs and Jews, have a say in their country's policies. Also, Israel has the highest level of literacy in the Middle East and provides the most vibrant economy for its people, both Jewish and Arab. Despite the tremendous success of this nation, Israel is surrounded by enemies and is constantly engaged in an ongoing battle for its very existence. Our interest, however, is not in the politics of the region, but in understanding why this tiny nation is the key to unlocking our understanding of history. As preparation for that understanding, we need to remember what the Apostle Paul said, as he wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He writes, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, it's very easy to become so caught up in our material world that we forget there is an unseen spiritual dimension as well. Conflicts and crises in the world have both the human element and the unseen spiritual element or dimension to view history and its events apart from a scriptural understanding of this reality limits our comprehension of the world. Without that understanding, we are like children trying to make sense of the adult world. Also, to try to interpret the events and crises taking place in the Middle East without a biblical foundation of the history of Israel and the Arab nations is impossible and certainly leads to wrong conclusions. Therefore, let us now seek to understand that foundation, that foundation of the history of Israel and the Arab nations, as we look at God's word and discover his purpose of history and the reason that Israel is the key to unlocking history and fulfilling God's plan. In order to understand history, obviously, we must begin at the beginning. The beginning, the history of God's dealings with humanity, and we'll see that through those dealings, both 
from the garden right up to today and on into the future. God's purpose is to reveal or manifest his many, many attributes. And as we see these attributes and we recognize them in God, we praise him and we glorify him in our recognition of these attributes. The attributes we specifically want to look at with respect to Israel is God's mercy, his love, and his grace. Now, it was through a specific nation and people that God chose to manifest these attributes and thereby focusing upon his righteousness and his offer of salvation both to Israel, to the world, and to every individual, to you and to me. God wrote in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, God says, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. By keeping his promises to Israel, God manifests his truthfulness and his trustworthiness. Now, let's look at history. Following Satan's rebellion and Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, God offered the first prophecy of the Bible, the very first prophecy, a prophecy of hope to all who long for deliverance from the power and influence of Satan and his usurped earthly kingdom. That hope was salvation through the woman and her seed. That first prophecy, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, declares, God speaking, And I will put enmity between thee, that's between Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, that's Satan's seed, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. The it is her seed. The seed will be the deliverer. The deliverer shall bruise or destroy, crush the head of Satan and remove all his power. But God goes on. And it shall bruise thy head and thou, that Satan, shall bruise the deliverer or his heel. Now, bruising the heel is certainly hurt and damaging, but it does not crush as God will crush Satan's power. Again, first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In this verse, we know from the rest of God's word that the seed is the Messiah that will come. Thus, God's trustworthiness will be demonstrated if and only if the Messiah overthrows Satan, crushes the power of Satan, and Satan's kingdom, and establishes his own, the Messiah's earthly kingdom. From the scriptures, we know that the Messiah was to come through the nation of Israel. Therefore, Israel is the key to history. Now, ever since this prophecy way back in the garden, Satan has been striving to prevent its fulfillment so that he can maintain his earthly kingdom. He considers Israel, therefore, to be his enemy. Following Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden, 
Satan began to divert mankind from seeking after God. Now on the slide, you see a picture of the European Union's Parliament building in Strasbourg, France. It was purposely designed to reflect and imitate the Tower of Babel. For the Tower of Babel was where Satan was trying to gather a worldwide government and a worldwide religion to worship Satan. The EU has duplicated it, clearly proclaiming their goal to follow in Satan's path and to unite the world. Now back at the Tower of Babel, as men turned away from their creator, God in his mercy and grace reached out to one man in an idol-worshiping place that was called Ur. He chose him to become the father of a nation that would ultimately bring forth the promised seed or Messiah. The man chosen to found that nation was Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham and Israel? Now, as God reveals his attributes and glory to humanity, what better way to do this than to start with someone the world would easily overlook? To start with a nobody. Abraham was an ordinary, yes, he was a sinful man, who God chose and developed into a spiritual giant. Abraham chose each one of us that God can use anybody in his plan and purposes. Through this ordinary individual, from the idol-worshiping culture of Ur, God brought forth the nation of Israel. Now, because the Messiah would come through Abraham's descendants, Satan has continually targeted them in order to maintain his grip on the earthly kingdom. For Satan is the God, little g, of this world. Many wonder why God chose the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Well, God answers that question, and he did it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when he says that he uses this nation to demonstrate his love and trustworthiness. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to look specifically at verses 7 and 8, where we read, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee, that's Israel, to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For ye were the fewest of all people. Why did he choose them? Because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. Now notice here, the Jewish people are a special people. God says that in Deuteronomy 7. They're above all the people of the earth. But notice the reasons. The first reason is God demonstrates his love through them. The second reason, God demonstrates his trustworthiness through them. There's no other reasons given in this verse, just those two. 
If you think about it for a minute, it's the same with you and with me. We're not wonderful people in and of ourselves. For the Bible says that we are all sinners. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's God's standard, which is perfection. We've all fallen short of that. We do not measure up to his glorious perfection. Furthermore, the scripture tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. So there is nothing in us that makes us worthy of God's love and favor. God also says further about us that we are worthy of death. That's spiritual death. And, and death biblically means to be separated from God in a place that he originally prepared for Satan and the rebellious angels, a place that was called and is called hell. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Again, both physical and spiritual death in Romans 6, verse 23. So the next time you question God's reason for choosing Israel to be his special people, Think about your own salvation if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've acknowledged that you're a sinner, that their wages of sin is death, and your future is an eternity separated from God, and you cry out to Jesus Christ to be your Savior, who on a cross, died on a cross, shed his blood for you, paid the price of those wages of sin, and then was buried, and the third day he rose again to prove that he had paid for those wages of sins. On that cross, he paid for your wages of sins. He paid for mine. He paid for all of our wages of sin. Jesus Christ did it. But we must accept that substitutionary death that he did for us. We must receive him as our Savior. If we have received him as our Savior, then we'll have an eternity with him and with God. Therefore, who did all the work? Jesus Christ paid the wages of our sin. Are you a special person to God? Well, you must be because God sent his son to die on a cross for you. Do you deserve special treatment by God because of who you are? <laughs> no, you don't. You were the sinner. Did God love you and offer you salvation? because you deserved it, or because of his mercy, his love, and his grace. Yes, he did it because of his love, his mercy, and his grace. So too, God used the nation of Israel to demonstrate that same mercy, that same love, and grace to both the Jewish people and to you and to me keeping in mind that God uses the nation of Israel now as a channel or a media to declare or demonstrate these attributes. Let's look at what God promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. If you'll look at Genesis 12 in verse 2, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. 
and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. There are four promises in these two verses. By fulfilling them, God reveals to all mankind that God is trustworthy. If he completes these four promises, there is no doubt he can be trusted with anything, including your own life. Notice carefully here. Number one, God promises to make a great nation of Abraham. Number two, to make Abraham's name great. You've heard of Abraham, haven't you? Number three, to make Abraham a blessing to those who bless him and a curse to those who curse him. And then finally, number four, to bless all the families of the earth through him. Through the promised Messiah would come from him who would bring spiritual deliverance and ultimately bring physical deliverance of the earth and humanity from Satan's grip. The earth will be restored to its original state, but it will be ruled by the Messiah. Thus, the key to understanding Israel's unique place, both in the world and in God's plan, is to understand and recognize the unseen spiritual battle that is being waged for Satan to retain his control of this world. He must prevent God from fulfilling these four key promises and by making it impossible for God to fulfill them. Throughout history, therefore, Satan has been attempting to do this by trying to corrupt or destroy the nation of Israel. Therefore, let us look at how he tried to corrupt and disqualify Israel from fulfilling God's purpose. When God chose Abram, he separated him from the peoples of the world. The Bible calls the peoples of the world the nations or Gentiles. This separation marks an important point in history from this time on. People no longer are distinguished by the nation or perhaps the place of their birth, but instead by their genealogy. If you're a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, you are Jewish. If you are not descended from them, you are a Gentile or the nations. When God promised that Messiah would come through Abraham, Satan immediately began to concentrate his opposition upon Abraham and Abraham's descendants in an attempt to corrupt them, to disqualify the line so that God could not use it to bring forth the seed, the Messiah. At the time of the promise, Abraham and his wife, they were without children. But God made the following statement to them. In Genesis chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 14 to 16. And the Lord said unto Abram, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward, and southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. 
and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall they, thy seed, also be numbered. See the promise here? Abraham had no children. God's promising a seed, a vast amount of descendants. Just as Satan now deceived and used Eve to tempt Adam, Satan now uses Sarah, Abraham's wife, to offer an alternative to God's way by convincing her to believe that they must help God out. Since God had promised an heir and she was past childbearing, she urged Abraham to do it man's way instead of God's way. Listening to his wife rather than God, Sarah's Egyptian maid, Hagar, conceived a surrogate child by Abraham, and they named that child Ishmael. Now, the Egyptians are some of the descendants of Noah's son, Ham. His irreverent, lewd behavior toward his father had caused God to curse Ham, indicating that the Messiah would not come from his line. Thus, Sarah's maid was an Egyptian, and the seed could not come through Hagar. Therefore, Ishmael could not be the seed. However, it's important to recognize that God loves all the descendants of Abraham, and that Christ died for all of his descendants as well. Now, to hinder God's plan, Satan was attempting to corrupt and disqualify Abraham's line by getting it sidetracked into this line that included Egyptian maid Hagar as the mother. Therefore, he was trying to corrupt the line by bringing in Ishmael, who could not, by God's own rules, because he was a descendant of Ham, be the seed. But you know what? <laughs> Neither Satan or man can hinder our God. Thirteen years later now, God repeated the promise of an heir to now 99-year-old Abraham. This time, he specifically named Abraham's wife, Sarah, as the one who would bear the child. God's plan was for the Messiah to come through their combined bloodline and not through a surrogate mother. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that first prophecy of the Bible, remember that God had promised Adam and Eve that the deliverer would come from them. Now God made this promise or carrying it on as a covenant to Abraham and to Sarah in Genesis 17, where God says in verses 19 to 21, And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Notice very carefully here, though Abraham and Hagar had a son, Ishmael, who could not be the seed. God still does not abandon Ishmael, but promised to bless him. But the covenant or the promise was given to Abraham that it would be his seed 
And now it says in Genesis 17 that it has to be his and Sarah's seed. And now will come Isaac. And through Isaac, his seed forever will be the Jewish people. Therefore, it's very important to recognize that all Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. And all Jewish people are descendants of Isaac. It is at this point that the Middle East crisis began and continues to our day. Satan has used Ishmael and his descendants in his attempt to corrupt and to destroy the Jewish people. For in doing so, Satan hoped to prevent the Messiah's first coming and that first purpose, which was to redeem humanity by saving them from their sins. And now Satan, not being able to prevent that, hopes to prevent the second coming of the Messiah. The second coming when the Messiah would come, take back the kingdom and restore the earthly kingdom to God with the Messiah as ruling the earth. Now, Isaac, like his father Abraham, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Once again, God specified the son that was to carry on the promise, the younger son, Jacob. We find this in Genesis 28, verses 13 to 15, in Genesis 35, verses 9 through 12, and Genesis 48, verses 3 to 4. Specifically, in Genesis 28, verses 8 and 9, we learn that Esau now, that's the older brother, Esau is angered by this blessing being passed to Jacob, and that it was through Jacob's line it would continue to the seed. So Esau, in his anger, he marries Ishmael's daughter and unites now his line with Ishmael. This marriage alliance intensifies the conflict between the now multiplying Arab peoples and the descendants of Isaac and then Isaac's son, Jacob. Isaac's son, Jacob, is renamed by God and God calls Jacob Israel. Through Jacob, he will father 12 sons and through them came the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The seed continued through that line. They were to possess the land that was promised to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob by God. Throughout history, Satan has sought to destroy this nation of Israel. For through Israel, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was born, and for Israel, Jesus Christ will return to the earth to fulfill God's prophecy to destroy the power of Satan, to crush his head once and for all. You see, Israel is the key to this fulfillment. Furthermore, throughout history, God used Jewish men of Israel to both write and keep and preserve the scriptures. That's our Bible. According to Zechariah chapter 12, when the nation of Israel repents of its covenant sins against God and turns back to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
God will send Jesus Christ to the earth to destroy Satan's kingdom and to forever crush Satan's head, his power, and thereby God will fulfill his earliest prophecy in Genesis 3.15, and he will prove throughout history he is trustworthy and will keep his word. This constant attempt by Satan to destroy the Jewish people and Israel is why the Jewish people have continually be, been persecuted ever since that division of the Arabs and the Jews. Satan has even delighted in using a counterfeit Christianity to destroy the Jewish people. False forms of Christianity that have employed force and coercion throughout the church age to persecute Jewish people in the name of Christianity. This explains the anti-Semitism seen in 1492 in Spain, the pogroms of Russia against the Jewish people in the later 19th century, and ultimately in Hitler's final solution in the 1940s with the Holocaust to destroy every last Jewish person. And today's growing anti-Semitism, notice, within the churches of America is Satan's attempt to once again to use supposedly Christians, proclaiming Christians, to persecute Jewish people. Any Christian who truly studies the scriptures, who understands Israel's place in that history, would never be anti-Semitic against a Jewish person. As we look around the world today, as we look at our news, the numbers are showing us that throughout the world, anti-Semitism, persecution of Jewish people is growing more and more every day. There are movements within Christianity today which are becoming coming out of the churches that are anti-Semitic. The true churches that are truly sticking to the scriptures and understand prophecy and Israel's place in the prophecy would never turn against the Jewish people. This change of the world of turning against the Jewish people that we're starting to see increasingly every day, Zechariah spoke about. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, he says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burden stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it, notice, shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. God's not going to allow the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and Jerusalem to be destroyed. As the world turns to destroy Jerusalem and Israel, God makes the following statement in verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Notice that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, 
as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So God will manifest his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his everlasting love using history and the nation of Israel. God will fulfill his covenant in Leviticus 26, verse 42, where he promised to always remember the nation of Israel. We read there in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 42, Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. As God regathers Israel to their land, he will cleanse the nation of its sins. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 29 says, For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all your idols, will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. You shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, that land he promised Abraham so long ago. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people. I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. God will bless Israel as he promised way back in Genesis 12. Abraham. This is why Israel is the key to unlocking history. As God restores Israel, he manifests his love and trustworthiness in keeping his word. As God fulfills his plan for history, he will keep his promises to Israel just as he keeps his promises to us. If we turn to Messiah Jesus as Savior, we too can be cleansed from all of our sin and restored to a relationship with God for all eternity. God promises this, and we know he keeps his word. A few final thoughts. Satan employs anti-Semitism as a tool to destroy the Jewish people and their nation of Israel, to prevent the Messiah's return to restore the earth and establish his kingdom. There must be Jewish people to repent and turn to him. There must be a nation of Israel to repent and turn to him for God to send back Jesus Christ. For Christians, to deny that the Messiah will return to establish his kingdom is to deny clear biblical teaching and actually promotes, helps, aids Satan's hope of an ultimate victory. By the way, an ultimate victory he can never achieve. As Satan actively pushes for victory, we should proclaim the gospel to all men while there is still time. Now until we meet again, may the Lord bless you mightily and I will see you either here or in the air.